Good day, everyone. Another day in paradise. Start of a month. December 1. Will it be a December to remember? We had a September to remember. We also had, I guess, a October, November to remember. October uh, this year. This October this year, of course, two days after I started this, the uh, ETF. The biggest one-month rally in the Dow Jones Industrial Average since 1976. Timing is everything, as they say. Anyway, we got a great room today. Uh, Michael Kramer. Michael, please mute yourself for a second. Michael Kramer, who's probably not a, a, um, a stranger to um, any of you. He uh, has made quite a splash on Twitter this year. Relatively new to the stage. And uh, I'm a subscriber to his service. I have no commercial relationship with Michael, but I think he's really switched on. Has had a really good call on markets. Probably not feeling too smart the last couple of days, just like I'm not feeling too smart the last couple of days either. But nevertheless, thought it'd be a great time to, uh, particularly good time to uh, discuss what's going on, as uh, things haven't exactly been going according to plan. But at any rate, uh, before we get started, as is our custom, in an effort to educate myself and maybe educate some of you. This day in history, which we always uh, have adopted as a tradition. So here we go. On December 1st, 1913, Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company, the world's first moving assembly line debuted using um, making Model Ts at the Ford factory in Highland Park, Michigan. 1913. That's amazing. It's only 109 years ago. Really extraordinary. 1940, I had to mention this, um, one of my all-time funny comedians that I love, Richard Pryor was actually born on December 1st, 1940. I think he passed away a few years ago. He was he was such a talent, and just, just truly extraordinary. And then in 1955, probably the most important of the three that I'm going to mention, Rosa Parks, in violation of segregation laws in Montgomery, Alabama. She refused to uh, surrender her bus seat to a white passenger and was and was uh, arrested. And from that uh, file, as I read here, Martin Luther King um, led a 381-day boycott of the bus company. So there you go. So everything was kind of going according to plan, Michael. I'll, let you, I'll just I'll share my frustration first, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm not sure who's more frustrated, you or I. <laughs> things were kind of going like okay like i read your stuff and i don't think i'm in an echo chamber because i'm like a financial you know crazy not too many people are as perverted as i am uh, when it comes to things financial but things were kind of teeing up pretty well um i thought uh ahead of uh pal and you know i think you were of a similar mind as well um and as i'm reminded What's important is not the news, but the reaction to the news, the market response function, so to speak. And that was, re- I mean, I, I was just stunned by what happened. I and mean, the people I, I, uh, I speak to um, were of uh, similar ilk. So we've been wrong early, call it whatever you want. Uh, and so, you know, uh, and it's, it's, it's been a, it's, it's really amazing. The stuff that's gone up the most is the stuff that went down the most. It's been a complete garbage rally, as we all know. But, you know, a pal could let the dogs out 
someone wrote today, I can't remember where, where I read it, that Powell would let the dogs out. And, um, you know, we've had this rally since, what, October 13th, thereabouts. And many smart people were saying, well, you know, he can't let financial conditions ease further because that would be totally at odds with, uh, with their objectives. Well, he did it. And I don't think a lot's changed. I mean, prices have changed, but I don't think the fundamentals have changed. But, you know, in the short run, as I say, the stock market, say, was it Warren Buffett? And the stock market in the short run is a popularity content. Long run, it's a it's a weighing mechanism, but you know it's been uh, it's been quite an extraordinary pop here. We'll we'll, we'll see. There's a lot of things we can talk about. Um, I it's funny. Um, I'm not going to go on a big rant here. People love when I rant, but we're gonna we're gonna mix it up a little bit. They're really here to they're really here to listen to you. So without further ado, Michael, <laughs> great that you're here. Um, I urge everyone to take a look at Michael's service again. I have no really commercial issue with Michael. I, I think he's got a really good feel for markets. And definitely, uh, definitely should check it out. So, Michael, welcome. Uh, maybe just talk a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you got to what you're doing, and go for it, Michael. The floor is yours. Okay. Uh, thanks, first of all, for having me on. Uh, you have, you know, obviously impressive background and impressive experience. So, I really appreciate, you know, the opportunity to do this with you. Um, so I've been following the markets for a really long time. I'm 45, but I've been following markets since I'm 15. So, you know, lived through the dot-com uh, bubble and everything. Lived through uh, the 2008 financial crisis. Um, you know, I was a buy-side trader for a really long time. Uh, did that for about 10 to 12 years. Did domestic equity trading to start with, and then moved into domestic and international equity trading. So that kind of gave me that global macro perspective on investing and, and things of that nature that I've really gotten into. And then when I turned about 35, 36, I realized I was getting older and uh, I had two little kids. Well, one was coming, the other one was two. And I was like, if I'm going to go out on my own, the time to do it is now because I'll never get this opportunity again. And um, just, kind of started my capital by myself I'm still by myself but um, you know I had an idea of trying to invest long-term investing long only buy and hold strategies and and that grew really nicely for me in the beginning but then you know obviously you need to keep the lights on so I started writing and sharing my experiences with the market and relating to people trying to explain to them what was really happening behind the scenes and and so that grew into writing for platforms like Seeking Alpha and Investing.com. And uh, then all of a sudden, I realized people were willing to you know, listen to me in private communities. So I started the subscription service. And it's really been uh, one thing after another. I still run money for myself and family and friends. But most of the business I concentrate on right now is for subscribers and for um uh, for the people that I service through my writings. Right. And, 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 and Michael, you tend to have a sort of... Uh... Uh, sort of, you have a, a sort of uh, top-down sort of strategist approach to markets, don't you? I mean, I really like I really like your style, but you tend to be more of a big picture top-down strategist rather than a bottom-up type of a guy, no? Yeah, I mean, I I believe that you know, and I think you know, again, living through so many, you know, being in the markets for like basically thirty years now, <laughs> you know, especially living through the dot-com period of time, I realize that buying stocks is two thirds understanding what the macro backdrop is and one third the stocks you actually pick. Um, you can pick the greatest stocks in the world, man. But if the market is not 
you know, if the favor, if the market favorables are, they're not favorable to you. The macro backdrop is not favorable. It doesn't matter what you pick. You're going to have a really tough time. Um, and, and so I really focus on, I start very, very high level, you know, what is the fed doing? What is their policy? And, and kind of look at the macro landscape to try to figure out what the fed's next move is going to be. And that's not easy, obviously, um, to do, but, you know, if you can do that and you put together a solid game plan, you know, you can do really well. And, and the market sort of forecasts a lot of that to you because, you know, the dollar should be doing something and bonds are going to be doing something. And I always tend to look at equities last because I'm always like, they're not the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to understanding economics. But every, every sort of basket and every sort of, um, asset class has its own little story to tell and it's kind of like looking at each one of them and putting together each of those stories and trying to find uh the theme and so that's where i actually came up with the name reading the markets because i feel like that's what i do every day so so michael um you've been at this for a while um i'm finding the market i mean most experienced professionals i speak to finding it a bit challenging i was talking to one really sharp guy this afternoon around a long time great record and more than trying to find out like what does he really like or not like i asked him this, my, my my go-to question which always is regardless of your opinion what's your confidence what's your conviction level how convicted are you around that opinion because you know the opportunity set's not linear sometimes there are a lot of quote-unquote obvious things to do and other times it's more conflicted right and he shook his head and just said to me george Never in my career have I had as little conviction about anything as I do right now. This whole thing is just complete. It's a complete mess. And right. I thought that was really revealing. Um, coming from a guy who's as smart as this fellow, who's done as well as this guy has. So let me put it to you. Um, I, I'll just speak for myself let me, for you. You know, the first nine months of this year was really pretty easy. Um, tightening financial conditions as we you know pull the curtain down on the you know, the big, biggest explosion, you know, irresponsible experiment monetary policy in the history of the world, the lowest interest rates in 5,000 years. Um, so as a, as a bathtub drained out of liquidity, you know, PEs came in. Um, and then you start looking forward towards the economic slowdown, you get earnings decline. It was pretty straightforward. And it, and it, it seemed to, you know, it was, uh, but, but then starting, starting September, October changed and it's become, uh, for me anyway, a lot choppier and more difficult. So I'm kind of curious uh, how, you know, just, just kind of give us context to what you've been thinking throughout the, bring us, bring us say from the start of this year till now, how has your thinking evolved and, and what, what are you presently thinking? So I actually started mapping this out probably in the summer of 2021, believe it or not. Um, it became clear to me that the economy was fully recovered, that it was stupid for the Fed to be continuing to do QE and that interest rates were going to have to rise at some point. On top of that, I realized that at some point earnings were going to start to slow. They couldn't grow at 30, 40% forever. PE multiples were historically extremely high, uh, only rivaled that of the late 1990s. Liquidity was too much, too much excess, too much speculation, too many gamma squeezes in, in stocks like you never heard of before uh you know i could name a few um but and then 
as we started getting closer and the Fed was becoming, you know, more of this tapering and the tapering and, you know, going back, looking through and having lived through the experience of 2012 through 2018, 2019, I had already known there was a direct relationship between quantitative easing, easing financial conditions, balance sheet expansion, more, more, most importantly, reserve balances held at the Fed. And so I knew that once QE stopped, it was obvious to me that there was going to be no more liquidity coming into this market, and this market had been very liquidity-driven. And at the worst-case scenario, I knew it was going to create a lot of volatility. And then we kind of got into the point in December where inflation started percolating. I wasn't really a believer of it in November and December of 2021. I was like, oh, this isn't going to last. You're going to see the dollar's going to start to strengthen. And you're going to see commodity prices collapse. And once commodity prices collapse, your inflation is gone. I wrote stories about that, actually. And then all of a sudden, I see oil collapse. I think it was in October or November of last year, of 2021. And I was like, oh, there goes your CPI. And then CPI comes out, and it was like much hotter than expected. I'm like, oh, crap, what is that happening? Like, that's not supposed to happen. For 20 years, every time oil goes up, CPI goes up. And when oil goes down, CPI goes down. So I started looking through it more and trying to figure out where it was going on. And I was like, oh, geez, this is something a little bit more than just commodity-based inflation. There's something else going on here. And, you know, it became really apparent that rates were too low. The Fed was going to have to, you know, NQE, start raising rates. And then I think before one of the Fed minutes, they dropped this Wall Street Journal article about a week before, and they were like, uh, the Fed may have talked about, you know, quantitative tightening, you know, reducing the size of the balance sheet at its last Fed meeting. I'm like, oh, where'd that come from? And, you know, so that kind of became really apparent to me then that the Fed was on a mission to not only, you know, raise rates and begin to tighten financial conditions, but to t continue to tighten financial conditions through um, through quantitative tightening and removing reserve balances the reverse repo facility began to really increase. And by, you know, January, February, reserve balances began to drop dramatically. I was just checking the numbers right now, actually. And um, so once you started to see reserve balances began to, drop, to, to decline, you could see leverage coming out of the market. Margin levels were declining, margin levels you know, that FINRA reports once a month were falling. There's a direct correlation that I've been able to establish between margin balances and reserve balances, because I think that's how monetary, that's how you get the transmission mechanism reserve balances into the stock market. And basically everything was really quite simple. <laughs> whenever, whenever yields would rise, the tip ETF would fall, reserve balances would drop, you knew a new low was coming in the market. I, I talked about it in June. I would go on Twitter all the time. We'll just look at the tip. Just watch the tip. Just watch the tip. And then all of a sudden, the tip stopped falling in like October. And all of a sudden, reserve balances stopped falling in October. And all of a sudden, you know, the dollar stops rising in November. And you can begin to see that these financial conditions began to ease. So it was like, you know, the game plan was like just in my mind, it was like right there. Powell had come out just three weeks before and was so clear that he wants, you know, financial conditions to tighten. Rates are going to be higher than where they were. 
They're going to leave monetary policy more, you know, leave it as restrictive and they're going to continue with quantitative tightening. And it's just like, okay, market rallies stupidly after that CPI report because of the adjustment in unemployment and and, uh, health insurance costs. And you're like, this is ridiculous. Like there's inflation. There's no real sign of cooling yet. This is just a technical change. And you figure knowing that Powell had just come out and said two weeks earlier and given how much financial conditions had eased and actually had can ease back to below Jackson Hole levels based off the Chicago Fed numbers, you're like, this is a layup. He's got to come in and he's got to push back against the market. And then, of course, he comes out yesterday and does his little song and dance and he doesn't he doesn't punch back. And by not punching back, he's telling the market like you tell any three year old kid. You know, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But if you don't punish them for it, they're just going to keep on doing it. I know I have kids that do it all the time. They're always testing me. And so he gave the permission yesterday to the market to go on with easing financial conditions. The one thing that just dawned on me that I totally just forgot about that just came to my mind as I'm going through the Fed balance sheet this week is that the Treasury general account is due to tighten by about $180 billion between now and year end. You could see today was the first day it increased up to $530 billion. So there's about another $200 billion worth of liquidity that's going to come out of the market between now and year end from reserve balances. It's going to push reserve balances probably below $3 trillion. Maybe that's why Powell was so willing to let financial conditions ease a little bit, because he knows that there's going to be liquidity coming out of the market via the TGA over the next couple of weeks. That's one certainly possibility. Other than that, what he did yesterday made absolutely zero sense to me. And it totally contradicted every single thing he's done since this, since he started doing this since the beginning. I mean, basically erased how many months worth of tightening in three or four weeks through the financial conditions that have eased. So it was really heartbreaking to me, to be quite honest with you, because It's just, you know, you go out there, you talk about this stuff publicly, you put yourself on the line. uh, And unfortunately, that's just what happens sometimes. And yeah, so, yeah, so Michael, let me interrupt, let me interrupt. So what do you think's going on? Or maybe you're the wrong guy to ask because, you know, and I'm the wrong guy to ask because we haven't had the plot here the last uh, 24, 48 hours. But the people that I um, speak to... Whether they were long or short to markets, one thing, but this kind of took pretty much everybody by a, by a, a back by surprise. So he could he couldn't be that. Maybe maybe I don't want to read too much into him, but like, what do you think's going on here? I mean, do you think? I mean, the TGA account argument you raised, I'm very familiar with that, but I don't know. I mean, I've never been so sure, so certain of so few things right now. So I don't know what to make of it. Do you? So what you were talking before about the rundown of the TGA account. Or maybe there's some other negative surprises coming up. I mean, mean, is he that sort of aloof or unaware what his what impact would be uh, engendered by his remarks? I mean, what do you think is really going on? Well, no, he he knows exactly what he's saying. He knows exactly what the response is going to be. I mean, Neil Kashkari, who and Fed governors never comment on the market in 30 years of doing. I've never seen it. Right. Neil Kashkari comes out out after the Jackson Hole speech by Powell and says, I couldn't have been happier by the market's reaction because we're we're trying really hard to get financial conditions to tighten. And we need everyone to realize how serious we are. Remember, at that November press conference, that last question was, oh, how do you 
the market's responding positively to this press conference, what would you say to them? And, and he hit back. So he knew what he was doing yesterday. The question is why? And maybe we got a little bit of a taste of that today with the ISM data, which clearly showed that we could be on the cusp of a recession, maybe as soon as this month, next month, because according to that number, a 49 handle, according to that press release, corresponds with a GDP real growth rate of 0.1%. Now, the recessionary numbers we had at the first half of the year weren't really recessionary. They were due to the high price index. Um, but these numbers aren't because of the high price index. These are like there's real contraction going on in the economy. And not that a 49 number is recessionary. It's usually like 46 to 47. But 0.1% doesn't really leave you a lot of room for comfort. And so all of a sudden you see the dollar tanking, you see yields tanking, you see real yields tanking. You're like the market is telling you see oil prices tanking. The market's telling you that there's a recession maybe here. And I don't want to believe that completely yet, but you know, all I need basically to tell me that that we're talking about recession is you need break even inflation expectations to really start moving down. And that was kind of the one thing that's holding me back today as I was looking at things, because the initial reaction was that break-even inflation expectations went up today, which was bizarre, given what was happening, unless the market has no confidence in what Powell is actually doing. Um, but then they finished the day sort of flattish. So tomorrow's job report is going to really tell us a lot about whether or not this is a recessionary sort of pinning that's happening in the bond and the currency markets right now. So if you were starting um, from ground zero, you had no legacy positions, say, say you had a new, you, you had an account, you take on a customer to manage money for them. And they don't right. think you're genius because you got it wrong. You were correct for a long time. They don't think you're an idiot because you messed up the last couple of days. You're caught by surprise. If you had a clean sheet of paper, uh, what would you be inclined to do? Would you just, kind of want to wait a little bit and see how it sorts out? Or would you be leaning long, leaning short? Like, what, what, I guess, or put it another way, what are your highest conviction beliefs right now? And in those, if you, if you just say confusion, that's fine. But just, you know, like, because I, I like to swing the bat hard when I think I know what's going on. And But, you know, when you, when you miss, you, you just don't look too hot. So what would you be doing right now if you had, if you, if you had a new, new account? Well, I mean, I'm always sort of a, I'm not a knee-jerk reaction type of guy. I like things to sort of settle out a little bit before I jump into anything. And my initial take is like the signals I'm starting to see are, are those that are starting to suggest that the market is, is moved past fed hikes and inflation and is now beginning to focus on the pending economic slowdown. Uh, the, the China numbers were beyond horrible the other night as well. And I think that if you if you if you get if you get follow through tomorrow, regardless of the jobs data, and you continue to see long end of the curve begin to decline, the dollar continue to weaken, and more importantly, commodities like copper and oil really struggle. I I think that it's an indication that the market is going to go from thinking of lower rates, weaker dollar, easing financial conditions as a positive to a negative. 
and will result in the market sort of screaming at the Fed, like a repeat of the 2018 episode where the market was tanking three or four percent and Powell just kept on talking. The market's going to realize that the Fed is just completely out of touch with what's actually happening and that the market, the equity market will begin to almost revolt against the Fed demanding they stop. Well, the, the, the markets the last few months uh, have not been obeying the Fed or following the lead of the Fed. No. What makes you optimistic to think that that's going to change? I mean, it, there's too much money out there. Right. Given half a provocation, they run out and they buy God knows whatever it is. You know, it, it, every week there's a narrative, there's a new story, whatever. There's just too much money out there. And um, so what makes you think that the market is going to fall in line with the Fed? I mean, in theory, it should. But that's to me, seems more like a hope than an expectation. Well, the Fed's done a fairly good job of getting the market in line. But what seems to be happening is that the first, I mean, the Fed really has no control over anything beyond really, I guess, two years. Um, And so that's sort of market forces. And the truth of the matter is, is that spreads between U.S. rates and a lot of international countries, uh, international, look, Japan, Europe, are still very highly favorable to U.S. rates. And so, and, and clearly, I mean, Europe and China and Japan are certainly not in a better position than we are. So it makes like really almost no sense for the dollar really to be weakening the way it is, unless you have a very crowded dollar trade, which we know it is, or if there's something else going on that would suggest that the market is just saying they're going to go against the Fed in this and continue to do what they're doing because it sees something it sees something changing. And like I said, the ISM data today could be that first little wrinkle. I mean, Europe has got its own problems, but I mean, the euro has rallied rather substantially. The pound has rallied rather substantially. The yen has rallied. Uh, and now you're starting to see the yuan uh, rally. And it really, um, it has to make you think that falling rates, falling dollar, falling oil, I mean, those aren't, those aren't the things that historically make you want to go out and buy stocks. Well, all things being equal, they're positive for risk assets. But again, you got to ask yourself, you know, why are those things happening? As, as um, many have uh, suggested, I'm just thinking now of Michael Kantrowitz, who's a friend of this room and has uh, been with us a lot, and others have pointed out that when the rate cuts start, it's actually a negative sign, not a positive sign, because the reason they're cutting, because of the reason that they're cutting the rate, something's wrong. Right. So, and so, but right now, the market's not getting that joke. And no. So, and so it's almost like the market can believe whatever it wants until they get punched in the face somehow. And we're in this sort of fantasy land. So, I don't know. Right. And, and, and so the, the actually the worst part which I'm sure you, you know as well, is that it's not when the yield curve inverts that you need to worry. It's when the yield curve begins to steepen. 
because that's the signal that the Fed is going to start cutting rates. And that's the, the signal that, yeah, we're here. This is the moment. And usually the yield curve begins to steepen once the employment rate begins to rise. And so if we now had one of the biggest inversions in 40 years, right, in, in the 10 minus, in the two's tens. And, and so we've been there, we've been inverted for, say, six months or so. The three-month, I think Powell follows a three-month, 18-month forward, three-month spread, which is also inverted now, uh, which is pretty deeply inverted at this point, which usually occurs right before a recession. So the, the likelihood is that if you get a, a number tomorrow that would suggest you know, you get a higher, a higher employ, unemployment rate, that could be the point where you really begin to see the yield curve re-steepen, not because, you know, the tens are rising to the twos, but because the twos are falling to the tens. So, and, so, 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 so at the risk of being ridiculous, what would you want to do with that? Would you want to go short equities? Would you want to buy bonds? Would you, you want to buy the front end? Do you want to uh, buy gold? Like, well, I mean, no, obviously. What, 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 what would you do? What would you do, Michael? Like if. Well, I mean, so I was just writing today for in my in my evening commentary, um, you know, that basically, I mean, the way I kind of would think about it is you would want to be you would want to buy bonds, obviously, TLT, even tip. Um, you would want to be in those longer duration sort of assets, I think. Um, obviously, you know, if you begin to see yields, you know, yields uh, coming down, yield curve sort of beginning to steepen, probably not going to be great for bank stocks, uh, probably not going to be good for industrials, um, probably not going to be good for staples, uh, consumer discretionary. Um, it would be good for you know, obviously it would be better for growthier names because as rates would come down, your valuations would improve, but you have to be sort of in high quality growth companies with real earnings and real growth rates that can, you know, sort of weather the storm. Otherwise it becomes a really sort of dicey environment. Obviously commodities don't do well in that type of environment. And so the tell really becomes when you see dollar falling commodity prices falling yields falling and and that's when you really i think have the sign so so stay with that for a second uh let's talk about commodity price particularly oil um we all know the oil bull case i'm sympathetic to the long-term view on oil the other day though i created quite a stir uh i listened to a uh a webinar put on by a major firm and they were going through uh, all the upsets that's occurring in China now and the prospect of massive lockdowns for perhaps anywhere from the next two to four months. Who knows if it's true or not, but whatever. The price of oil, despite all the known positives, the uh, impending Russian um, uh, sanctions, the anticipated refilling of the SPR, the dollar's been going down. 
possible China reopening. That was a rallying cry three weeks ago. Price of crude's right. price of crude's not doing very well, and I don't mean to suggest I'm not, before anyone. And by the way, I am a honorary member of the Canadian Oil Mafia, so no one should throw tomatoes at me for for talking out of both sides of my mouth. Um, you know, despite all these uh, positives, the price of oil can't get out of its own way. And when, again, what's important is not the news, but the reaction to the news. And when something happens and the price doesn't do what you expect it to, you've got to ask yourself, like, what's going on here? And so what I'm wondering is, is perhaps the scenario you're describing, you know, a market deceleration, global economies, possible, you know, recession, all, all that, your scenario, would that kind of, uh, fit with what you see happening with the oil price right now, or put it another way, what do you think is going on with the oil price? Well, and what's even more bizarre is I, you didn't mention that they're going to potentially cut supply again. <laughs> yeah, I, for, I forgot about that. Exactly, hundred percent, hundred percent. You have all these you have all these positive incentives, but the but the crude the price of commodity can't get out of its own way. Right, and and so it's funny because when you look at a technical chart of it, it broke a major long term uptrend. And and so I think I wrote that it could go back to 65 or so. And again, what that's sort of t- telling you is, is that the oil market, despite a weakening dollar, uh, sees a global slowdown coming. And even even more surprising, I mean, the dollar was crushed today. Copper wasn't even up. Right. I mean, that to me is really bizarre. Iron ore prices are at their lowest level in, in forever. You know, um, you're looking at Australia, uh, Aussie dollar, Japanese yen trade beginning to break down, which is a major risk on risk off signal. You know, I look at all these things, unfortunately, being an international trader, I used to trade all over the world. And, you know, so I've kind of gotten used to just watching Asian markets at night and waking up in the middle of the night and looking to see how Germany's trading and such. But, you know, when you're starting to see some of these major sort of currency pairs breaking down um you know it, it really sort and and not only that but you're seeing the yen break down versus the dollar and and so that to me is very critical because the yen i think a lot of the reason why the yen route uh weakened so much against the dollar was because it was not only a, a yen dollar trade but it was a bet against the japanese economy due to high oil prices being so inflationary for them, given that they don't have any oil of their own, they import it all. And so the fact that you're seeing oil prices come down and now you're seeing the yen trade, the the dollar yen trade unwind, not just because of monetary policy, but I think also because of the whole breakdown in oil prices, which is also another indication that there's something going on with with, um, supply and demand balances around the globe, which would be suggestive of a, of a slowing economic. You, 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 just, you just made an excellent point. I hadn't put the two and two together, but what you say about Japan is also true for, you know, compared to the U.S. and compared to Europe. The U.S., on an oil balance basis, is in a far superior position, not just to Japan, but, but Europe as well. Uh, and sure. so that would square the circle perfectly. It's a brilliant insight on your part. Um, so, yeah. So we put all that together. You've had all these um, things happening in rapid succession. We now come into December. It's a new month. Markets tend to get less liquid as we go into to later into December. You pointed out the possibility of the TGA account being built up again. I saw some from Morgan Stanley the other day. They said they were looking, I think, 
between the TGA account and the um, the shrinkage of the Fed balance sheet, I think a $300 billion reduction in liquidity between now and the end of the year. The TGA account is supposed to go up to $700 billion from 480 right now. Who knows? It was up to 532 today. 532, okay, fine. Yeah. So there's more where that came from. So if you have um, liquidity draining in December and markets tend to get less liquid as the month goes on, I can't see who's going to stand up and want to make a stand and take risk. I mean, it's not predictive, but you're certainly setting the preconditions for some interesting movements to occur. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I've been caught on my back foot here in the last few days, so I'm not really feeling it. But as I look at it, just trying to ignore the price action, I don't think a lot's changed. Or if it's changed, it's changed for the worse, actually. So It's funny because when you asked when I could do this, I figured today would be a layup conversation. <laughs> I know I mean, it was so obvious. I, 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 I even wrote You're, to you. I, was I know. Like, yeah, I know. Let, 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 Thursday will be after Palace. I know. Let, 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 let's yeah. have a parade. Let's have a parade for King Michael. He will. He'll be spiking the football after you know Powell being a hawk and and, and the inflation data. Be like, yeah, bring it. Okay. It's like, and then I was like sitting in my office and I'm like, oh crap, what am we going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen. Let's 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 move along. Let's go to the audience a little bit. Uh, if you have a question for Michael, please raise your hand. The more the merrier. Uh, I see Baron is up on stage. Hey, Baron, good to, good to see you. What's up? You got a question for Michael? Yeah, how you doing, guys? Hey, how are Michael, you? Michael, good. Michael, I've been following you, buddy. It's a, I think you're doing a great job looking at the technicals. I think you're, you know, we're basically just waiting for the snapback right now. The uh, this the signals have all been the same, and it's all worked. You know, we tend to follow the, fun- the fundamentals, and uh, we, or we, at least we follow the technicals. We get caught up in the fundamentals, right? In the news, et cetera. Yeah. Even though we know the news is all hindsight and just the excuse, it's important for us to remember. <laughs> I'm kind of like George. I'm kind of a perma bear uh, in a lot of ways, but I'm actually, you know, I'm open ended to always uh, changing. The uh, but the reality is, I think that something's shifted here. Like you said, you've been po- posting quite well about it. Something shifted. We're trying to sniff out what that is. Clearly, the Fed, his first statement was, we haven't made a dent in inflation year over year. His first statement yesterday, he made it very clear. It is persistent, and we haven't gotten away from it. But he wanted everyone to shift from thinking about what rate hike we're doing to the long-term outlook of rate hikes. And the market just wanted to rally. But it was going to where it wanted to go to a 4,100. There's a call wall there. Everyone knows it. Right. Dow theory basically proves that basically we're ready to dump. All the divergent signals are ready to dump. And, you know, it pushed back today already. It has to confirm tomorrow. And if we do, we go to new lows. And then we're all <clears throat> going to be back to where we were in September, where George had the same feeling as I did. George was actually saying it, and I was actually feeling it. I was like, oh, George said it for me. You know, we're like, oh, my God, this rally is crazy. They're not listening to the Fed. And then reality set in, and we felt good again. And we got through these cycles of feeling euphoric on the downside. To what the hell are they doing on the upside? I am constantly listening to you. I really appreciate your charts. Others do the same. Um, I have a question though. <clears throat> um, with the dollar falling, uh, that that is comp- dollar falling. That's confirmation of something that didn't happen back then, right? So back in September, the dollar was strong, wasn't falling, was rising. So there has been a shift there. So maybe the recession trade's coming in now, um, or pivot confusion, whatever it might be. I believe, and again, I'm a little bit of a tinfoil hat theorist on this, but I've been correct the entire time for some reason. They're using, they're basically pumping the market for something. They're letting the market run to prepare for padding for something else. 
Now, Yellen went to Japan when Japan was about to dump their $1.3 trillion of U.S. treasuries, which is they're the ones who started this whole thing with the dollar. They Overnight, they sold the treasuries. They, they, they destroyed the, the rate overnight. Then they sold the dollar down during the open market, yep. and, then, and they bought the yen. And they started doing that back to back to back in cycles over time. As the, as the dollar got stronger, they nailed it down. As the rates went up, they went down. Now, Yellen had a meeting with them. No one knew the outcome. It was a surprise meeting. It wasn't planned. And now China wants to do the same thing, by the way. So it's believed by many that basically Japan's been allowed to sell off the dollar, weakening the dollar, which then the belief is that Yellen wanted to sell or buy long-term treasuries, which I don't understand that part. Maybe you do better, but it would make it uh, possible for the Fed to start doing QT because now the rate's not that high, right? If you bring it back down into a range or low, low end of the range, they can do QT excessively letting the market go up and down in its normal cycle, call it a soft landing. Um, I'm trying to process it. Um, so I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about is, uh, so, I mean, I, 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 there's some, I mean, obviously what you're talking about with the yen is very true. It was very obvious. They were coming in in the mornings. They were, they were, they were selling treasuries, building up their reserve, you know, balances. And they were going in and, and buying yen and dumping dollars. The Chinese were also doing it kind of coordinated as well with their, with their, through their banks. Um, it was like, you know, the champ, Japan would come in and do it. They'd get the dollar a week or then China would follow up a little bit later with some of its own. Um so, you know, the only the only thing that you could think about from a, a Yellen standpoint is, is we're going into year end. I guess there's potential of a um, what is it? Uh, when uh, I can't even think right now, there's potential, obviously, maybe there's like a deadlock and they can't get, you know, the, the debt limit raised. So maybe she wants to raise as much again going into the CGA. So maybe she wants to get, you know, some of those those rates down a little bit if you want to go along that, you know, sort of conspiracy theory that, you know, so she's trying to, you know, load up on sort of longer dated bonds at lower rates while she can. And then maybe when we go into the new year, I guess things change. But um, outside of that, I really couldn't think of uh, a scenario for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, listen, it's highly problematic. I mean, we can try to ascribe a lot of narratives or theories as to what's going on i'm always always like to focus on price on the one on the what i mean the why oftentimes you know it's only revealed later on the 11 o'clock news why it's happening um but the price action is um undeniable and when you look at the cross asset uh confirmation from bonds to uh, currencies to commodities equities kind of I mean, michael's i think story fits to a t but i don't know baron did you, did you have a it does it, it, yeah it does actually and that's a, that's actually what i was going to get to so sorry i didn't do so before i wanted to get too much didn't want to say too much at one time so all the people i follow including michael i'm following you um all the data was lining up with basically long the, the zoom out zoom out zoom out basically uh we're at a top uh, all the divergence signals are there. The VIX hit is getting to 20 where they want it, basically. In 2008, 
it hit it basically dialed down to 18 before it would hit 80 the next week and we're exactly in the same place with sort of similar information i don't know if they're all if it all lines up but pretty close and you've been posting the same information it all makes sense would i go long here george is asking kind of like if you're on a blank piece of paper hell no this is extreme greed so if you just want to use that you know that, that, that you know indicator of extreme greed every time we fit stream greed in this bear market we go down for new lows we're there yeah baron, there. yeah baron would you have the conies with new money to go short now nah, maybe yeah over overbought name so overbought names for example so yeah so, what, so what, you want to see some price confirmation of the momentum shifting before you would pile on the short side is that what, is that what you're going yeah with definitely why, why why not yeah you want to get confirmation once you get it you know Tomorrow, for example, is the weekly. Once we check, we, we close tomorrow. We haven't broken forty one hundred. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to see some ugliness next week, and including the VIX tried popping up today, the dollar tried popping up today. Uh, we had a couple pieces of news that that you know there were people were all looking. Was it the PCE? Was it the PMI? The PMI was actually forty seven. It was actually terrible. Um, and then that that actually caused some problems. Then we had the SPF uh, in the Senate that caused some problems, and actually. Uh, he actually, they actually identified that they actually might want to freeze cryptos, and that's a possibility. Now tonight, what's the other piece of news? The rail, the rail strike comes up for tomorrow. They don't have the votes. Is that the piece of news they use as their excuse to push it down and start the shorts? I believe it is. So if we don't get those votes, there's going to be some piece of information. It doesn't matter what it is. It's all planned event. And right. if we just zoom out, you can see it all happen. Sure. Baron, that that's fantastic. Stay up there. I want, I want to. I want to move. We're gonna close. We're gonna go till just before six. I want to make this room move along at a brisk pace. So we're going to go to Aurelius, and then we're bringing some other folks up. Aurelius, you have a question for Michael? Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. George. Hey, Michael. Uh, I really like your posts, like your charts. Uh, I kind of came in a little late. Uh, you were making some comments about the yen and uh, the yen price action as it relates to risk on, risk off. Uh, would you mind just quickly going back over that just briefly? What what you were saying right there? Actually, with with, with respect, with respect for the other seven hundred people in the room, um, I don't want him to answer that question again because you can listen to the replay or speak to Michael and myself. Oh, okay, I see. I, I didn't see that it was recorded. My bad. Well, well no, it's 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 not fair to the other seven hundred people. Probably. Yeah, of course, of course. Okay. I didn't realize it was recorded. Oh, that, that's okay. Let's move on. Um, all right, let's go to Nostra. Nostra, dumbass. I love you, man. What's up, guy? <laughs> Hi, George. Always nice uh, talking with you. Uh, Michael, my question is, um, today we saw the 10-year yield go anywhere from 25 to 50 basis point discounted of Fed funds rate. And my question to you is, how do we make uh, sense of all this, considering that the two years are at 4.23, the one year is at 4.65? Um, from, from the top of my head, um, just off the top of my head, uh, I don't think I've seen that historically. I have to go back and check. Um, do you know that information? Thank you. Um, the only thing I know is that the spread between the 10 and the twos right now is 72 basis points and it hasn't been that wide in 40 plus years. Um, again, the, the, the only thing that I, I, and I could see this starting, I could see it forming last week and, and you could see that all of these, all of these rates, all the dollar, all these spreads, we're all on the cusp of just breaking down. And, you know, it kind of gave me more conviction that Powell was going to have to come out and push back, knowing that, you know, it can unleash, he could unleash a wave of financial easing. And he did. Um, so 
you know, I, I think, again, when it comes to the 10-year, what the early preliminary message that I'm getting from the market is one of the market is, is I think, growing increasingly concerned about an ec- a global economic slowdown and the potential impact uh, for higher unemployment here in the U.S. And, and, and not only that, but people forget that if inflation comes down to 2%, it doesn't mean that prices have come down. $10 hamburger is still going to be $10. It's just going to be going up at a 2% rate instead of an 8% rate. And if you have, you know, and if you're, if you're spending, if your purchasing power has declined and you only have $8 now because you haven't been able to keep up with the rate of inflation, you still can't afford that hamburger, even though inflation's only at 2%. So I think that the consumer has lost a tremendous amount of purchasing power over the last year. And I think that the market maybe coming to grips with that as well. Uh, thank you, Michael. But my question um, that I really want to know is why, why is the 10 and 30 years significantly below the Fed funds rate? Not just the yield curve because, inversion, but why is it below? Because the, the long end of the curve doesn't really move with Fed funds, right? I mean, the Fed really has no control of the curve once you get that far out. And so that's sort of what the market is dictating, and the market, and that's what I mean by the market, the market is the long end of the curve is telling you that it doesn't, it doesn't see a strong economic outlook in the future. Hey, Mike, let me throw a question at you. Sure. Um, you know, many observers, myself included, have been looking for a recession for quite a long while now. And as someone wrote recently, we get this recession will be the most advertised recession in history most anticipated recession in history. And, you know, I think it's the great Bob Farrell, you know, the line about, you know, when everyone's expecting one thing, you get something else. So what's the chance that either we don't get a recession or we get a recession, but, you know, it's kind of mild, it's no big deal, whatever. And it's already discounted because prices have gone down, blah, 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 blah. And putting that together, namely saying, what if there's no, what, what if there's no edge in investing in the idea of a recession? How would you respond to that? Well, I, I mean, you're, you're basically saying that everything that we've come to know in terms of how bond market prices is no longer works. That would be the first piece, I guess. Uh, the second piece is that I think consensus is mostly for like, if we get a recession, it will be a mild recession. Um, I guess the other way you could think about it is that maybe you don't get a recession, but maybe you have bad stagflation. And I guess the final one to look at it would be is that we don't get a mild recession, but we get a very severe contraction, a very severe recession. Um, And it's hard to obviously handicap any of those, but the, the steepness of the yield curve is sort of interesting. And I've been trying to work on figuring out the relationship between the steepness and the severity of a recession. To this point, I haven't really gotten anything conclusive, but the steepness of it is sort of uh, more of a concern to me because when you look at, I don't know, I just recently found the function on Bloomberg, so I've been playing that around with the forward curve matrix. The, the Bloomberg terminal, according to the forward curve matrix, 
doesn't have the 10, the two minus 10 going into positive territory again in for two years. <laughs> so I'm thinking about that and I'm like, gee, does that mean we're going to be like in a recession for the next two years or we're going to see two years of like really of like solid economics, you know, sort of no growth? Just yeah, 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 Michael, let me let me let me let me interrupt you. Um, yeah, and everyone's talking about radio carbon, radio carbon. I mean, you know, the taxi cab drivers talk about that now, right? All right, but what about the idea that okay, it's an inverted yield curve, but still nominal rates in real terms they're not particularly high, depending on what inflation number you want to use. You could they're either low or they're negative. In some areas, they're still highly stimulative. Obviously, in the interest-sensitive parts of the economy, like housing, it's having a very negative effect. But in other parts of the economy, heck, I don't think cost of capital is a big deal for for, for most companies. Four and a half, five percent is not a big deal. So how do you juxtapose? Because, again, there's there's the general rule of, like, you know, if this, then that, and this tends to happen when this happens, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but what's different this time is we've got much higher inflation, uh, and so real rates are much lower than they've been in the past. So I, I hear you saying, yeah, yeah, you want to think about the steepness of the yield curve as maybe being indicative of the severity or duration of a recession. But what about the fact that real rates are, are, are so low in comparison to, in other words, I think it was Drucker Miller, somebody said a few months ago, you know, you know the identity. It's like the Fed always has to raise rates to into positive real terms for a sustained period of time to, to bring on a slowdown or a recession. Correct. We haven't seen that yet. No. So how does that enter your thinking? And that, and that's really where you get, you get, and that's really why there is like a little bit of hesitation, right? Because the, for example, like I would have thought today you would have seen a bigger move down in inflation expectations and, and not see real yields like the 10 year real yield actually move lower, but kind of just stay the same and nominal yields come down to them. And, and so trying to understand and figure out what the movement down in real yields means is a little perplexing to me at this point. And it's, it's a point where it's like I, the, the little bit of confusion still, because I, I would think, again, that you'd want to see inflation expectations really begin to decline if you're heading into a recession. And we don't have that yet. Um, and in terms of, I guess, what you're saying is that, you know, I 100% agree. I mean, you need you need that Fed funds rate to be you need at least part of the curve to be above that inflation rate. And when I look back, I mean, usually the 10 year trades above the uh, inflation rate. Yeah. Now I want to point out to you, Powell said something. I can't remember what testimony was a few weeks ago. They want to have positive real rates up and down the entire curve. Right. We don't have that. It depends on what you call a real rate. Well, I'm not tips are all about tips are all positive. Yeah. But tips are tips are bogus. I mean, Tip, tips have gone from the Jim Bianco talks about this all the time. Tips totally manipulated market. The Fed's gone from owning four percent of that market three years ago to I think twenty eight percent now or something like that. So I don't yeah. I don't I don't take much solace or direction from the tips market. That's kind of that's to, to me the information content that is a bit spurious. But I, I digress. Let's move on to some other smart cookies. We got uh, oh we got two sharpies up here. We got. We're going to do Ken and then Ken Roberts, my good friend. Good to see you. And Rob. So, Ken, please unmute yourself. You got a question for Michael? 
Yeah, and hey, George, uh, thanks for putting this room together. Uh, I follow Michael, and and he does a great job of helping people understand how all the different things in the market relate to each other. And, um, you know, one of the things I really hate is when, when I get the picture right about what's happening, but then... I miss out on profiting from it. And right right now, what really scares me about this market is that I'm going to try to outsmart the market and trying to figure out what's next. And it just seems like to me right here, uh, the obvious move is to have a little gold, a little long bonds, and then just roll 90-day treasuries until this shit's over. So, Michael, what do you think about that? I'll tell you. Some people ask all the time. It's like, well, if I had a choice between making 4% in a money market account or 3% and then putting my money into like the NASDAQ and losing 30, I would take putting my money into the money market account every day of the week without question, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it all comes down to risk preferences, though. You know, how much how much risk you want to assume because if uh, you know, you could, you know, I mean, look, if you want to take it from the bull angle and you got all this seasonality crap that they like to talk about behind you, you got CTAs who are going, you know, who are doing their thing. Uh, you know, you get the call wall to move up and 4,200, you know, maybe you got another four or 5% of the upside here. I, you know, that's, that's the hard part about this market because, as George said in the beginning, there's still a lot of liquidity out there and, right. and the fed hasn't really done enough to get rid of that. And so I, I think that it, it, it really comes down to what your professional or personal investing style is. I mean, I'm a long only buy and hold type of guy, so I'm not in there trading every day, but I am assessing the market every single day because I want to know when the right time is to, you know, maybe dump something that I've been looking to get rid of and when I want to get into the market and, and kind of unload some of the cash I have and pick up some new positions. And, and so it, it really, I think it comes down to what your personality is and, and what you're looking to accomplish. Because if you're a day trader, you might be loving this. But if you're a guy like me who's just looking for, you know, uh, in terms of my investing strategy this is frustrating because, you know, there's a lot of things I want to buy, but I'm also not going to buy them up here. So I can have, you know, get myself slaughtered later. Well, what I want to accomplish this year is not to have any clients uh, lose another 5% of their capital in this environment. So, uh, you know, I think that's the most difficult thing is keeping up with the monthly FOMO and uh, not really focusing on the bigger picture and, you know, it, it, it just really seems like the it's kind of a matter, not if, but when this, and, you know, and it just seems like it's getting much closer of the thing rolling over. So, um, you know, it, I, you know, I at this point, it just seems like a better bet to bet on 3500 than to bet on the thing going to 4400. And and you think, you know, I think if I'm right. If I'm wrong, I'm going to be wrong temporarily, not permanently. Right. Thanks for that. Thanks for, thanks for that, Tim. Let's right. let's try to keep this thing moving here. Uh, Baron, do you have, Baron, do you have a quick follow up? Then we're going to go to Rob. Do I do up? actually, and um, 
One is to answer your question you asked about the short side trade. And, you know, one thing that we can take away from this market to, and to the, uh, this time around is that the mega caps finally started getting hit, right? So all the mega caps, one by one, started losing sentiment and favoritism. Meta, you know, Twitter, Tesla. What's, what's next? What's next? Is it Apple? Is that the good trade? Is that is, is 150 the top for Apple? It's been confirmed quite a bit. So that might be a good one to look at because uh, yeah. they're losing a lot of favoritism. Yep. And Appreciate the second that. thing is, yeah, yep. you're welcome. Uh, so sorry about yep. that. But actually, I had it on my mind, but I just didn't want to say at the time. But yeah, that's my favorite. So the other thing is the, um, I don't know if a lot of you guys have could comment on this, but have you guys, I've always correlated this over the years. Have you guys been getting a lot of mailers and offers to lock up your money in banks for high interest rates? 3% interest plus a bonus of, you know, $1,000 on top of that, making effectively a 6% over the next, you know, 60 to 90 days. So those always come out and from banks always come out in surges whenever they want to lock up money. And ironically, I actually look at that and I say, what happens during the time following that? I keep those mailers. It's a little bit crazy, but I keep those mailers and I say, what happens from here? And every single time the market dips down lower. As if that I don't know what it is. I don't want to put anything on there, but they're locking my money up if I if I go into this for this attractive rate. And are they using my money to make more money? This isn't an FTX, obviously, where they're like they're capitalizing. You know, it's so attractive. But did you guys get the same? Yeah, Baron. It's funny you say that because uh, I hadn't noticed that, but I noticed a similar, different phenomenon, and that was you probably we all got these about a year ago. The credit card companies you're inundated with all these offers, these balanced transfers of like teaser rates, like you know, borrow money for 18 months at two percent, stuff like that. It's like they're overflowing with money, they didn't know what to do with it. And so, like, at the risk of using a double negative, you couldn't not take that money. It's like if someone's offering you money for 18 months at two percent, like, come on. And so, that was a tell. I mean. And so it's kind of funny. I got to look into what you to what you just described. And that's a really good insight. Thank you for that. Well, you uh, can also use 2019. Look at the end of 2019 that they were offering CDs at 3.2, 3.4% right before everything cracked, right before everything cracked. And I, I locked up some money at that point. I made a big mistake actually, but I had to pull it out of there right before everything started falling apart. Basically they did, they uh, did the same thing. And this has happened in the past when I wasn't getting these mailers, right. but I talked to people and the timelines match up. Appreciate that, Baron. All right, let's keep it moving because I'm going to stop this room in 15 minutes. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Please unmute yourself, Rob. What's up? Hey, you didn't hear me, yes? All good. Go for it. Okay, good. Thanks, George. Great to be back with you and everybody else. By the way, if uh, if I'm a smart cookie, then you you and Michael and a lot of the other people in here are smart cakes. Um, <laughs> Michael, you <Yeah. laughs> – Michael, uh, I, I have to tell you, I think we, we may have communicated a couple of times briefly to LinkedIn or something, but uh, – you know, I've been following you on uh, uh, Seeking Alpha quite a bit. I recently uh, became a contributor there myself. And uh, I have to say, um, you, you're definitely one of my influences there. And uh, I aspire to be as prominent on that platform as you are. Uh, also, as a 42-year technician myself, I'm watching uh, uh, your parallels uh, chart and everything else. Uh, I want to ask uh, just a couple quick things uh, regarding current market and uh, technicals, Okay. Uh, and, and good timing today. So, you know, I, and, and in fact, I just wrote this in my last uh, uh, Seeking Alpha article, um, trend line resistance. And this has been the story of this year for the SP 500 and for many, many sectors, individual names. 
Well, there's a reason, okay? If people like to say, well, you know, maybe the market's not driven by technicals, okay? If it's not, then why did the market stop at 4,100 spot 51 today, basically right at the trend line, uh, the downtrend line? Uh, my question to you, because this 2022 has been, to me, the year where a lot of technical analysis, traditional technical analysis, uh, didn't work as well as it did in the past. It fooled a lot of people, especially the infinite number of copycats who just kind of learn the basics and, you know, pontificate about what, uh, you know, what, what, uh, uh, what everybody else is talking about. I kind of feel like this has been a year where if you wanted to have success managing money, as many of us do, you kind of had to take traditional technical analysis and you had to kind of think, you know what, how is it evolving in a way that most people don't understand? So with that as the context, okay, tomorrow could be a big day. Because we haven't broken through this declining trend line to start on January 4th. And, you know, here we are end of the year. What happens if we bust through? Uh, are you looking at the same kind of thing I am, even if it's kind of through your historical parallel chart that you had with the VIX and the, and the broad market? Um, so to answer the first part of your question, I think the reason why a lot of technicals aren't working the way they used to work especially like some indicators, I think is because you have um, passive flows, ETFs, and because you have option trading like you've never seen before. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when the S&P rips higher, like it did yesterday because of the volatility melt on short dated options, you know, the futures go up and the baskets just go up with it. So you're going to get an overwhelmingly 90% up day because the only thing that's driving it higher is all the gamma squeeze basically going on, right? And, yes. all, the, and all the hedging that's unwinding or all the futures that are being bought by market makers. So I think that has distorted everything. I think it's actually very dangerous that they have option expiration every single day in the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. And it's distorting things like the put-to-call ratio. Um I think it's basically worthless at this point um, to answer your second question. So I have like a set of parameters around tomorrow actually. And I've been very clear with them, with my readers. I not only want to see the S and P 500, if it's going to go through the trend line tomorrow, if it happens, it has to gap above that trend line. It cannot mm -hmm. go through it intraday and, and, and close above it. Right. To see a really convincing break, of that trend line, I'd want to see a gap above the trend line. And then I would want to see it obviously close above that trend line. Um, for one day or in the next week? I need to see it at least for one day to get me thinking about it. And then if you're obviously there for a couple of days and you don't get a negative RSI divergence, uh, for me, it would probably indicate you got a chance to maybe get up to around 42 and a quarter and you fill a gap and then maybe even test the August highs. Um, I don't know. I mean, part of me, like, you know, again, a little bit conspiracy and just being in this market forever. <laughs> I don't, you know, trust everything, but I don't know how much of a coincidence it is that we have the job report tomorrow and you have the big trend line there today. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, we'll see. Thank you for yeah. the answer. We'll uh, let George move on. All I would say is uh, what you described is what we're looking for tomorrow and in the next week. Is, is it a breakout that's sustainable or is it a fake out breakout? Correct. Thank you. Michael, um, 
within the mark. So it sounds like you don't want to own equities. Um, and but I, I do. I do. See, that's the thing is that I do own equities, right? But I don't own – I'm not – in other words, I'm not fully invested though. So just to be clear, right? Okay. Well, let me put it another way. Okay. Um, you're looking for the market to go lower. Right. Um, as the saying goes, I think it was Yogi Bear, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. Or the other one I like is, you know, good people are priced over time, but never the two together. Right. So you had to sort of just contextualize your outlook. Say, you know, first half of next year, if you had to handicap, we're in Vegas, I take it you're a sports guy, and we had the over, we had the over under. Where's the over-under sort of on low print for the S&P in the first half of next year in your view? Do you think we do 3,500, 3,000? I mean, like, are you uber bearish, moderately bearish? I mean, like, and also in terms of time, like, do you think this is going to be over quickly or do you think this is going to play out for quite a while? Just maybe flush out the contours a little bit about what type of a, of a, of a decline you're looking for. So I've been looking for the S&P to trade down to around 13 to 14 times earnings, which equates to around 32-ish hundred. Um, the reason why I picked those numbers is because that is typically when um, you see that has typically been in relation to a, uh, a bottom in, in P multiples outside of the 2009 episode, right? Um, and that would probably adequately discount, you know, sort of any sort of earnings contractions you would see. Um, in terms of how it plays out, I honestly thought going into November, we had a really good shot of that happening before the end of this year. Obviously, that hasn't worked out for me. Um, but I think that there is a possibility that if you get a 50 basis point rate hike in December and they show on their dot plot that they're going to go above 5%, uh, then I think there's a chance that you could get that big sell-off into the second half of December and into the first half of the first quarter. And then what's going to happen is, which I think is going to be a little bit of a surprise to everyone, and I keep reminding everyone this, that Sales and earnings for the S&P 500 are reported in nominal terms, not in real terms, So, which you know. So there's a good chance that earnings and sales really hold up much better than everyone expects because you have a high inflation rate. And so that means that if you did get a big sell-off into the beginning of the year, it probably would rebound after earnings. While I know a lot of people are looking for the market to kind of decline after earnings season, I said the same thing last quarter as well, because I think as long as inflation remains high, you're going to see earnings and sales not come down as quickly as everybody thinks. And that could prolong things quite a bit. Got it. Okay, let's go. Uh, Baron, do you have a quick follow-up? And after Baron, we're going to go to Michael. Quick yeah, there. Michael. Well, Michael, what you just said is actually, if you look at every single stock that had shrinking margins, okay, on, on earnings, okay, I mean, shrinking margins, 20, 40 percent. Some of these banks have down 40 percent. Some of the companies look at uh, Amazon, all of them. What they, the, al the algos are shoving them up. So every time they dump them and then they pump them and they push them right back up. So the SaaS companies 
It was one snowflake last night after hours, basically dumped down to 122. They pushed it right back up for 5% positive today, despite having, you know, and they, and each time I've noticed the trend, they're pushing out two reports, two earnings, separate earnings reports. One shows a negative number, one shows a beat. So they get the market down, they, they dump it after hours and they pump it back up. And this is somehow after shrinking margins, the stock continues rallying all the way into keeping these indices up. Thanks, Baron. Okay, we're going to go to uh, Michael. Uh, and I think Michael's going to be, after Michael, we're going to wrap up the room. Michael, uh, please unmute yourself. Just a great, uh, just a great space as always. Michael, amazing information. Um, I just have one quick question, and that is in 2007, in that top, okay, the yen carry trade was on, and not that anything's easy, but it was pretty easy to predict the direction of the market um, with the yen strengthening. And has that relationship, is that over with? Is that carry leverage no longer there? So I actually remember that. I, I remember sitting, I remember I was much younger, obviously, but I was like, you know, you were watching the yen, the, the big risk on trade was the euro yen relate pair. And it was like the, um, in 2007, 2008, that, that pair broke down. And once that pair broke down, it was like, you knew risk was off. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know that it has the same, I don't think the Euro yen has the same sort of meaning today as maybe it did then. Um, I, I look more to the Aussie dollar yen trade. Uh, the reason why I tend to look more to that one is just because of its relationship directly with China, with the Aussie dollar being, uh, with Australia being so heavily influenced and tied to China growth. And so if, if that's the relationship, I've sort of been leaning my hat on a lot more. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for this excellent space. Great. Okay. We're going to, uh, Kevin Pollock is going to have the last, last word. Kevin, please unmute yourself. Hey, George. Great space as always. Thanks uh, for giving me a chance. Um, I just uh, wanted to reflect a little bit and maybe a slightly different take on what happened with, uh, with Powell yesterday. Um, I think when you strip the emotion out of what he, you know, basically everybody's going to see what they want to see out of a speech. But I think if you strip the emotion out of what he said yesterday, you realize that this message has been the same for months and months and months. They were going to do, you know, 50 points and they're looking at 25s from there on out and everything's data dependent. I don't really think that uh, in spite of the fact that the market reacted to it the way it did, because people, you know, let's face it, people have been looking for a pivot for a long time now. Pivot, pivot, pivot's been a thing. And in reality, the message didn't change. Now, what I would say is, is that like everybody else, I think, um, they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants in some, you know, to some degree. I, you still got incredibly strong spending. I mean, if you listen to the CEOs of MasterCard and Visa, um, you know, I don't know about you guys going out for dinner someplace, but I can tell you anecdotally up here in Toronto, when people are going out, uh, it's hard to book places. So there's no question there's still strength showing, um, but they're not unaware of what's going on with respect to the curve and stuff too. You know, the bond market is telling you that they fear the hard landing. 
And uh, although I can see what Powell says in terms of the ability to, that there's a narrow path to a soft landing, I'm not a believer in that. But I will say that, you know, if you look and you compare this to other soft landings over the last 20 years, you could still see with the data that it could still be a possibility. Um, but having said that, you know, my thinking is if you put yourself in his shoes and you look at what inflation's saying and where you want to go with things and the possibilities of all these, these you know, of the hard landing, inflation still rising, et cetera, et cetera. They're trying to get to that four and a half, five percent. They're trying to find some place that gives them the middle ground that if they still need to go up, that they're at some level that's mm, relatively neutral. And that if they have, and, and again, he doesn't want to tank the economy. I mean, he really honestly can't say anything different, can he? Um, but I think that, that, again, they're trying to get themselves maximum flexibility. They've been on message for a full year. And if you paid attention to what they said, you've done fine. From here on out, they want to give themselves the flexibility because this thing is, is seriously a situation of two solitudes. And, um, you know, further to that, with respect to what's going on with the equity market, I would add something that maybe nobody, I don't know if you guys were looking at this as well, but um, I noticed today that the anchored VWAP to the beginning of the year is literally, we are literally sitting on that line. So it's not just the trend line that everybody's talking about, but in fact, the actual anchored VWAP on the S&P futures, we literally closed right under it. And it's, it's the year... It's the month, it's the day, it's all floating around this level. So it's a significant level. So what I would say about this is if tomorrow's payroll number uh, comes out with any surprises either side, I think if this thing gaps above that line, like Michael said, I think this thing actually could have some legs in the short term. Um, I definitely think, though, that if we sell off of whatever number comes out tomorrow, that it's a go with trade as well. And, and so I think. I guess at the end of the day, whatever happens at the close of this week should be very telling about what to expect in the near term. So I'm just going to offer that. Appreciate that, Kevin. Um, last thing, I'll just one comment. Uh, I was discussing with someone today. I mean, the idea that, that, that markets are all knowing and, and, and good at forecasting things, we're having a discussion about where rates could go. Point out to me, a year ago, this time last year, the expectation for um, overnight for two-year money a year ago for today was 66 basis points. Yeah. Heard that right. 66 basis points. Yes. So you've seen some consolidation in the bond market. And, and I think, you know, this is also important too. where we are with the curve with respect to that. So I, I know this came up about the, the depth of the curve here. If people are starting, if the bond market starting to believe that hard landing's coming, you're going to see guys putting on, uh, putting on steep yeah, trades, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, Kevin, if you don't mind, I, I, I kind of want to close the room. Yeah. So um, I don't want to be rude, but I, I, I'm up against a hard stop here. Um, okay. So we can continue this in the, in the next conversation. I, I, I was just going to say nobody knows nothing, right? And yeah. the idea, I, I, what I venture to say is you should consider fat tails. Rates are going to probably wind up being somewhere – other than where sort of central case scenario is, is because that's where we've been so far. So, so Kevin, I really like your input. I'd love to hear from you more in the next space. I don't mean to be a jerk about it, but I, I have a hard yeah, stop no, here. No, so no. But that's fine. Hey, Michael, this has been fantastic. Um, I hope you, you enjoyed yourself. We've learned a lot. And again, I urge everyone to uh, 
reach out to Michael. Uh, he's on Twitter. He's on Seeking Alpha. He's got a terrific uh, service. I find I'm a subscriber. It's a real value add. Um, Michael, I hope you'll consider coming back, uh, if not as a speaker again in this room, but please come into these rooms. As you can tell, we have a pretty smart audience full of good questions and always lends itself to interesting dialogue. So again, Michael, I want to thank you for, I want to thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. And absolutely. Um, I'd like to come back again. And if I can help in any way, you just let me know. That's ter That's terrific. All right. With that, we're going to, we're going to close the room. Um, our next space, I think, is Monday from memory. We have the great Arjun Murthy. He used to be um, the energy analyst for Goldman Sachs. He's a great guy, and he's going to be speaking about the future for energy. So with that, I want to bid everyone a good night and uh, talk to you guys. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.